Before we jump in this morning to our topic, I, I think we need to acknowledge that all of our hearts have been heavy with uh, watching the things that have been going on around the world in Ukraine in particular. And um, I'd just like for us to, as, as a people, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, more than 70% of Ukrainians identify themselves as followers of Christ. Um, and so there are a lot of believers there, a lot of churches right now that are struggling to figure out what to do and, and kind of how to progress. So I, I just wonder if we could maybe start by lifting up a prayer for the people there as well as other countries involved and leaders involved in making decisions and all that. And then we'll, we'll jump into our topic for today. But let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do just come to you today with our hearts are heavy to watch the, the scenes that we've seen, um, the stories that we've heard in the Ukraine uh, area. Lord, our prayer is for protection over those people. Our prayer is for a stop to the aggression uh, that, that is being carried out against them. Uh, we know that the, the hearts of kings are in your hand, and so you can control all this situation, uh, Lord. And uh, so, But we pray for them. I pray for the church there in Ukraine. I pray for pastors and, and other ch Christian leaders there that they would stand up uh, to proclaim the gospel even in the midst of very difficult times. So, Lord, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what to ask for other than your intervention and your protection there. So we, we lift all that up to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I just encourage you to continue you know, praying over that situation. But um, you know, if we could take maybe just a, a little bit more of a lighthearted turn this morning, um, you know, kind of on the same theme with the international theme, but a little bit more lighthearted, I have to tell you, Sean and I have been a little bit sad this week. You want to know why? Because the Olympics are over. Yeah. Right? Anybody else? Okay, thank you. And so we've not been able to, you know, to, to watch the Olympics. And, and I'll tell you why. We, we enjoy doing that. Um, first and foremost, uh, you know, a big part of that, obviously, is I just like sports. And since my body doesn't cooperate to play them anymore, I watch them on TV. That's kind of how it works, right, as you get older. And so I enjoy watching things. But I have to tell you, the, the reason that we have enjoyed the Olympics is really not primarily even because of the sporting events. It's because of the opportunity to feel like you kind of get to know some of the athletes, you know, and the stories behind the scenes. And there's some really cool stuff happening. And we enjoyed you know, the, the whole, I'm sure you, you maybe have seen the clip with Sean White, who was in his fifth Olympics and came up just short of a medal. He came in fourth place, but when they um, interviewed him afterwards and they showed him his family and he was actually able to see and communicate with his family, he just burst into tears. He's like, I love y'all so much. And, and it's just cool to see the more human side of things, right? To see these freakishly talented athletes just living as, as real human beings. And then maybe one of my favorite stories uh, was the story of Michaela Schifrin, who um, I didn't know much about her at all prior to the Olympics. I'm not a big skiing fan, but she is considered by most to be the greatest female alpine skier of all time and has set all kinds of records. Uh, she was the first person, male or female, to win 50 World Cup races um, at, at the earliest age. She was 23 years, nine months when she had won 50 World Cup races. That's, that's impressive. Um, but I, I didn't know anything about her until the Olympics started and they shared her story and had an interview with her. And the reason this was such a powerful story is because it talked about her relationship with her family. And her mom and dad have always traveled with her. 
And, um, you know, her dad was, had become kind of a, a photographer of hers. In fact, I think we have a, a photo, don't we, of her dad taking a picture of her as well as a picture. Oh, did that make it, make it to us there? Uh, there we go. So you can see that's her dad taking her picture. That's another picture of her dad with her. So mom and dad were always with her when she would go and ski in these events. And he got all these incredible photos of her. And then two years ago... Her dad died of a tragic accident. He had some type of brain injury and, and died of this tragic accident. And so here she is in her first Olympics without her dad. And she and her dad were extremely close. And so as most of you know, I have two girls and I'm very close with both of my girls. And so this story resonated with me of here's a young lady who's still 26, 27, something like that. She's still very young. And she's trying to navigate what does my life look like now without my dad. And uh, so there was, you know, that, that she, and she opened up and was very, you know, transparent. It was just really cool. So it kind of just drew me in. You know, I'm like, I don't know anything about skiing. I don't know anything about her, but I know about being a dad. And I know about being close to your girls. And I can only imagine what she must be going through. And so I started cheering for her, you know, and that was my primary interest was watching uh, Michaela Schifrin when she would do her events. And things didn't go well for her this time. Uh, she actually fell in three different events, failed to even finish the events uh, because she'd found, I remember, greatest skier of all time, falls in three events. The events that she completed, she did not place in. And then her last opportunity for a medal was the, the team skiing event, and they came in fourth place. And here's the thing that impressed me the most, watching her go through all this. She never shied away from... The interviews, she didn't shy away from speaking afterwards. I mean, after falling and just all these horrible disappointments, she would still speak. And it was as if she understood that the world needed to hear, how does the greatest skier of all time handle failure? And, and she did it incredibly gracefully. So that just made me more of a fan uh, of, of her. And so all I know about her is what I saw, right, in these little 30-second clips, this little story that was, that was run about her. But I feel kind of like I know her. The truth is I don't. And she certainly doesn't know me. But that's kind of how the world works today with celebrities, right? Some celebrities, they'll, they'll put their stuff out there on social media. They'll, they'll let you feel like you know them a little bit, right? And you develop this kind of false sense of connectedness of, oh, I really know this person. And, you know, when in reality, they don't know you at all. You don't know your favorite celebrity that you follow on Instagram or wherever else any more than I know Michaela Schifrin. That we, we don't know them. But here's the thing that blows my mind. The God of the universe does make himself available to be known, not just from a distance, but in a personal, intimate way. And mind blower number two is that we are known by him. Today, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're finishing up our series uh, that's called Marriage, the Gospel on Display. And today, we're talking about intimacy on display. And, and, and each week, we talk about a certain characteristic of our relationship with God and how that can be applied in the context of marriage or really in the context of other relationships, for that matter. And today, we're talking about intimacy and the fact that, that God's design for us is that we would know Him in an intimate way, just as his design for a married couple is for that couple to have physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy. That's the way God designed marriage is not just to, to, you know, kind of survive together, but to be 
one together, and the same is true in our relationship with Him. And so I want you to open your Bible with me to a passage. We're going to read this, and you might think, now that's a really weird passage of Scripture for, uh, for us to use in talking about knowing God. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll read it here in just a minute, uh, verse 15 through 17. But let me give you just a little background that'll make it, hopefully, help it make a little more sense. This, this, the city of Corinth. Um, was the home to the temple of Aphrodite. And you may remember that Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of beauty and love and fertility. And so in this temple, they had a really demented form of, and I use quotes, worship. And that was that they had temple prostitutes. And so these men would come into this city, it was a port city, and they would pay to have sex with a temple prostitute as a form of worship. And that money is what funded the temple. That, that's how they did their thing there. And so it's helpful for us to at least have that, that background in our minds and understanding. Because what we're going to read here is he talks about one uniting himself with a prostitute. and all. Just keep in mind... The whole temple of Aphrodite and what took place there, that'll maybe give us a little context, okay? Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, there's a lot packed into these, these few verses here. But really, here's the main point, is that he talks about uniting with, in this case, a, a, a prostitute, is, is the same type of connection, the same word is used to talk about uniting with the Lord. And so that same type of closeness and intimacy that a husband and wife would experience in a marriage is the same level of intimacy and closeness that we are to experience with God. Now that word there, unite, means to glue or to stick together. And that's an interesting word and it explains a lot about the way God designed things because when there is a physical intimacy in a, in a relationship, that glues those two people together. And of course, in the context of marriage, that's a very good thing because it helps to, to, to bring more closeness and, and unity among that couple. But it also can become a very dangerous thing because it's also true of couples that are not in a marriage relationship. If they choose to engage in physical intimacy, there is a, a gluing or a uniting that takes place there. And that's why one of the reasons why this is so dangerous. And there are a lot of different reasons we could talk about, a lot of different things that we could pass, we could go down. Um, but that's one primary reason why God says to reserve physical intimacy for marriage because if you choose not to then there's going to be a a connection that happens at a much deeper level there's going to be a gluing together that that is unhealthy outside of a marriage relationship because here's what happens when a couple has been glued together that way when they've been physically intimate with one another when they separate it's, it's ripping something apart that was never intended to be ripped apart. And it causes incredible pain. Now, any time a couple that cares deeply about one another goes through a separation, it's going to be painful, right? I'm sure everybody has been through something at some time or another where there's been some type of, of a breakup of some type of romantic relationship. And that is painful. It's always painful. But it's 
infinitely harder when there's been physical intimacy because there's a gluing together there that, that just wasn't intended in that relationship. Now, some might hear that and, and just say, yeah, that, that's not an issue. And here's the reason why I don't think it matters if I'm physically intimate with this person because we're, we're going to be together forever. We're never going to break up. And it's possible that might be true, although not likely, I might add, statistically speaking. But even if it is, to engage in that type of physical union before marriage is robbing yourself of the blessing of being able to come together as a married couple and enjoy something together as a married couple that God has designed in that context. And so, um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different reasons why. Any type of uniting in a physical union with someone other than a spouse uh, is a bad idea, although it might be very pleasurable for the time, and there, there may be a strong pull toward that. It's a bad idea for a lot of reasons. But here's the bottom line. I mean, yeah, you can choose to do what you choose to do, but you have a choice to make, and that is, are you going to live for your own desire and for your own pleasure, or are you going to live for the glory of God? And it can't be both. See, if, if our desire is to glorify God in all we do, uh, then, then that becomes the, the primary thing. So in this passage, he talks about you know, one who, who unites that way in, in that type of relationship. And then verse 16, and this is the part that really gets my blood pumping, is when you read verse 17, he says, but anyone who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so there's that same level of, of, of gluing together, of uniting in a, in a way that is never to be broken in our relationship with God. And so here's the main idea today. It's that God desires deep intimacy with his children. That's really the main point that I want you to get. God desires deep intimacy with us as his children. And you know, the, the fact that he uses the same words to talk about uniting with uh, a, a woman here and the same word to talk about uniting with God, that's not intended to be crude or suggestive in any way. It's simply saying, let me take an, an illustration of an earthly, uh, something that you can relate to, and let's apply it in our relationship with God, which he does in a lot of different areas in a lot of different ways. And so let's take the one thing that is the most intimate thing that we can imagine from a, a, an earthly standpoint, and let's say that's, that's how we are to relate to God. So the, the best model of this, where we see unbroken, this fellowship and intimacy with God, is Genesis 2, before the fall happened, Right? You look at, at Adam and Eve and their relationship with God, and, and, uh, and then they chose to disobey. They rebelled, they eat the forbidden fruit, and what happens after they eat the forbidden fruit? You remember what Adam and Eve did? The first thing it says that they did was they sewed together a covering from fig leaves because they realized they were naked, and they, they were ashamed of that. So they covered up, and they hid you remember when it says God came as he always did to, 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 to just walk with them? It says in the cool of the day. And when God showed up as he always did, which isn't that mind-blowing, by the way, you have your afternoon walk with God. But that's, that's what they were able to experience. And he calls out to them and he says, where are you? <laughs> which is kind of funny, right? As if God didn't already know where they were. Um, 
But he, he was giving them an opportunity here to, 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 to kind of come forward and to, and to stop hiding. Um, but the thing that they did was that they covered up and they hid. And that's really, as we talk about developing deep intimacy with God, that's really the one action step that I want us to focus on today is that we refuse to cover up and hide. You see, when, when sin enters into the equation, our tendency is to cover up and hide. Just like Adam and Eve did, um, they, they covered up and they, they hid from God. We've learned how to cover things up. We become masters of projecting a certain image to people around us, whether that's through social media or the conversations that we have. In fact, maybe I should change that. Rather than saying we're masters of that, maybe what we should say is we become slaves to projecting a certain image to those around us. You know, we, we just feel like we have to control how people view us, and so what do we do? We cover things up that aren't going to look good, and we hide. We do exactly the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Genesis 3, verse 12, after... God comes to them, he says, where are you? And, and, and he says, you know, we were afraid and so we hid. And, and then God asks him the question, did you eat of the forbidden fruit? And then listen to the response in Genesis 3.12. So again, God's asking a question that he surely knows the answer to. There's no doubt about that. He knows that they've eaten of the forbidden fruit. But he asks the question of Adam to give him an opportunity to, to come forward, right? To stop hiding, to stop trying to cover up. And this was his response. Genesis 3:12, the man said, "The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it." Now that, my friends, is not stepping out of hiding. That is deflecting, and that is shifting blame. And do you hear who he's blaming for? The, the, the fact that he ate the fruit, the first person he blames is Eve. And the second person he blames is God himself. He says, the woman you put here. Like, wow, that's, that's bold, right? And it's crazy how demented our thinking gets when we start trying to cover up and hide. And so I can read that and get real critical real quickly with Adam. Until I realize I do exactly the same thing. When I do something wrong, when there's a mistake that I make, when there's some type of sin in my life, I can give you a thousand reasons why it's not my fault. And I can rationalize it away and explain it away. I've gotten really good at that. And most of us have. But here's what I've learned. If I really want to walk in intimacy with God, and I do, then I have to acknowledge my sinfulness. I have to stop covering up and hiding. And just bring it out into the open. Because let me read to you what happens when we do bring it out into the open. First John 8, or chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, confession means not only that we acknowledge our sinfulness, but it, it means that, that we are putting our trust in God that he will forgive us. We're, we're confessing, 
but we're confessing with a belief that then we receive the forgiveness of God. And it's interesting because this is the way we begin a relationship with God in the first place, right? Before we can come into a relationship with God, we have to come to a point of confession or acknowledging our own sinfulness. That I am a sinful person just like you are. And my sin, your sin, separates us from a holy God. The only hope we have is that God would offer forgiveness, which he does, thankfully. And that forgiveness came through Christ. It came through God himself becoming a human being, taking on human flesh, and then ultimately dying in our place to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. That's why Jesus died. He became a substitute for us. He became the sacrifice in terms of the Old Testament, the once for all sacrifice for our sins. And so through the blood of Christ that was shed for us, we don't have to die. That can cover our sinfulness if we will confess. If we will acknowledge our sinfulness and and acknowledge the fact that we are doomed on our own there is no hope of us making things right with God but Jesus has done all the work now our part is to respond in faith and if we do that if we confess our sins he's faithful and he's just to forgive us but you know that's not just talking about a salvation moment and by the way if there's someone here that hasn't come to an initial place of trusting in Christ I urge you today to make that choice to say yes to Jesus, turn away from your sin, acknowledge your own sinfulness, but know he's ready to forgive. He's done everything necessary in order for you to be forgiven. That's how we start a relationship. But then in Colossians 2, it reminds us that we grow in our relationship the same way we started it. Listen to Colossians 2.6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Now the question is, what does he mean by just as we received him as Lord? Well, we we received him by faith, right? We received him by confessing our sinfulness and trusting in him. That's how you become a child of God, and that's how you grow as a child of God. Because once we trust in Jesus, we're born again, but we're spiritual infants. And now it's time for us to grow up. And we grow up not by doing things. And see, I think we sometimes have this mindset. It's like, I trust Christ and by faith I'm saved but then I've got to do all the work I've got to do this and this and this and this and yeah there are there are things that are that we need to do but that should all be an overflow of our faith that should all be an outworking of the Holy Spirit in us that we have a desire to do those things so we grow the same way we come to faith in Christ in the first place and I would remind you that being a follower of Jesus is an all-in deal. It's not a you know, little bit, halfway here or there. He gave everything. So it only makes sense that we would go all out. We would go all in for our all in all. We give him everything. And we trust him completely. So here's a good way for us to know. Am I making God the, the highest priority in my life? And I would even say without even a close second. One of the ways that we can tell that is to ask ourselves this question, am I being completely transparent with God? Because I'm telling you, that's a good indicator of our intimacy. If if we're not covering up and hiding from God, that's a good indication that there is a deep level of trust and intimacy that has been formed in our relationship with God. I mean, it kind of works the same way in human relationships, doesn't it? 
that when we stop hiding and we, we um, expose ourselves in some respect, then there, there is intimacy that comes from that. I mean, we've been able to see that being apart for the last month or so. Uh, Sean and I were, were a part of a, a group that started a new connect group on Tuesday nights. And uh, we've had several folks come in and be a part of that connect group. Um, I, I, we've been amazed with all the new people coming together and being together only a month at the level of uh, just closeness and, and how the group has bonded very, very quickly. And I'll tell you the primary reason why. It's because from week one, there was someone in our group that just opened up completely. And he said, I just, you know, if we're going to be in a group together, I'm just going to be an open book with you. Here's some things that I've struggled with in my past and some real issues in his past as well as some, some distant past as well as some recent past. And he said, I'm really trying to get my relationship with God back right again. And just having that level of transparency, I'm telling you, it... it changes the dynamic and it's caused everybody to be able to to come together more quickly uh, we need that that type of of openness we need that transparency with one another i mean just to to, to put it in in terms of a uh, we're talking here about uh, intimacy and and being one as a couple i mean think about this 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 truth kind of hit me as I was thinking through this, this this week. There's so many parallels between physical oneness and spiritual oneness. And even just in physical oneness, there is no physical intimacy without nakedness, right? That is necessary in order for that to happen. And spiritually speaking, the same thing is true. There's no real intimacy with God without nakedness, without us being willing to stop hiding behind things. And I, I don't mean that in, a, in an appropriate way in any respect, but even in relationships with other people in a you know, figurative sense, to be able to, to just kind of bear everything before one another, to be honest with one another, that's what allows intimacy to happen. And so it's scary, and uh, you know, it, it, it may not be easy, but it's so very important. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes that we have together just talking about how does this apply in the context of marriage? Because we've spent most of our time in this series talking about our relationship with the Lord, and there's obvious application. But let's just talk for a, for a few minutes here about what this looks like in the context of a marriage relationship. Because just as God has designed us for deep intimacy with one another, He has designed marriage to be uh, a relationship where there's deep intimacy between husband and wife. I think it goes without saying that unfortunately it doesn't always work that way, right? That's not always the way uh, things go, and, but they can. And I want to encourage you, if you are married, I want to encourage you to not give up on that hope that there can be real intimacy between you and your spouse. Physical, emotional, spiritual, all those aspects are intended to glue us together. So that they, that person really does become your best friend and your soulmate and the person that you trust more than anyone else. Now, when distance happens in a marriage, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it's not like you go to bed emotionally right next to each other and in the middle of the night a tornado comes and picks one up and just you know, flings them a few miles away so that now you wake up the next morning and you're miles apart. That's not how it works. Distance happens a little bit over time. Or another way to put it, if, if you think about having a flat tire in your marriage, a flat tire is going to be the result of a slow leak, not a massive blowout. Now, 
there are massive blowouts that happen in marriages, right? And so those are the easy things to look at and say, well, this is the real problem. But I'm telling you, there was a slow leak leading up to that massive blowout because that's just how it works. And so it, it takes intentional effort to close that gap when there's been emotional distance. But when there's emotional distance in a relationship, that usually means that there's pain that has caused that distance, right? Maybe something has happened. One person or both, probably both, people have felt very hurt by the other person. And you know what happens when we get hurt by somebody? We build up walls, right? We say, I don't want to get hurt again. I don't want to go through that again. And so we just build these emotional and, and, and spiritual and even physical walls between ourselves and our spouse. And if you've been hurt and you find yourself in a marriage right now where there, that you, you know what I'm talking about, maybe this hits a little close to home, it's understandable. I get it. Nobody wants to go through pain, right? But sometimes pain is a necessary part of the healing process. See, if you've got a heart problem, you're probably going to have to go through some type of potentially open heart surgery. You might have to expose that problem and let a surgeon do the work to repair what is wrong with the heart. Is that going to be painful? Some of you maybe have been through that. You can speak to that. I'm not personally. But I know that anytime there is open heart surgery, there is pain involved. There is a, a process of recovery and all that that is very painful. But the end result should be healing. If you find yourself covering up in your marriage because you don't want to get hurt, can I just encourage you to let the surgeon with a capital S do what he needs to do to repair and to work on that relationship. Now some of you may think, yeah, I'm willing to do that, but my spouse won't meet me halfway, and so what can I do? Let me tell you what you can do. You can work on you. You can let God still do his work on your heart. And true, you can't force somebody else into something, even your own spouse. But even if that person is not willing to, to come alongside you, you do what you can do to work on you. And if you both are willing to let God work on your heart. I'm telling you, he'll transform your relationship. When two people are seeking God with all of their heart and they're willing to be honest with one another and they stop hiding from one another and those walls start to come down, it's amazing what God can do. That same thing is true in other relationships. As we take the walls down and as we make ourselves transparent, we're putting ourselves in a place where real intimacy can happen. And so that's my challenge for you today. Stop hiding and covering up. First and foremost, be honest with God. Be open with God. Know that God's design is, is to, to bring good into your life, that he wants the best for you. And even if it's a, a painful process to go to the point of healing, then do what's necessary in order to make that happen. I'm telling you, it's going to be worth it. It's scary. Intimacy is scary. But when it happens and in the right way, in a healthy way, in a God-designed way, it is so worth whatever it takes to get there. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you know us. You love us. We don't have to love you from a distance. 
God, you know us intimately, and, and, and we are known by you, and we can know you, and Lord, all of that just blows my mind, but I'm grateful for it today. And I pray that that's true of our relationships, and I pray specifically that it's true of marriages, because Lord, I know a lot of marriages, they stick together, but there's no intimacy, and so my prayer is that there would be oneness that would come as a result of you working on hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.